Saturday to you. Happy Saturday to you. Happy Saturday, dear fellow victims. Happy first day of summer to you. The summer nuttiness is on the march. Everywhere you look, the bells are beginning to ring. Everywhere you look, bring it up, Bob, please. Because I've got to warn the world about Union Beach, New Jersey. Monday morning, me and Joe went out fishing in my 10-foot green plastic rowboat with my folding six-horsepower engine. We embarked from Prince's Bay, Staten Island. And around 12.30, 1 o'clock or so, we trolled across the lower bay, me and my buddy. I am 16. Joe was hungry. So we put ashore at Union Beach, New Jersey, since the closest thing there that I saw to a dock was the sewage pipe. We landed on the beach. We knew we were in New Jersey. We came in full power, forward gear, until we were about 20 feet off the beach. I cut the throttle. I brought up the engine out of the water as we slid onto the silver sands of the beautiful Union Beach, New Jersey public beach. We had just beached the boat when I was confronted by a tiny native with a car tire demanding that I help take out the inner tube. I said I didn't know how. And in parentheses, he says, disillusionment. Sea God from Staten Island can't take a tire apart. Some girls who looked like they would bite us on the shins asked where we were from. Joe answered, Staten Island. This caused excited chatter and several grunts. We walked up the beach crossed the main dirt road to the, quote, Italian Frankfurter stand. And there was a sign on it that said, closest thing to Maglioni's. We each had an Italian hot dog, typical Jersey bit of fare. A quarter of a loaf of bread, round, split down the middle, with a doubled-over hot dog beneath French fries and onions and large dollops of ketchup and mustard. We listened to some local gossip while eating our beautiful Italian frankfurters. Everyone was up in arms in the area about uh, a dirty old man throwing a little kid out of the Italian hot dog stand. The Italian hot dog lady showed a matronly compassion. My overall impression of the natives and of the place then was uh, Andy Griffiths Mayberry. Now, I know it's a uh, lunatic farm and the Italian hot dog lady is the keeper. Going across the main road back to the boat some guys about 17 or 18 or so sitting on the playground swings began screaming with the varying tones of imbecility. High falsetto voice. Hip, hip, hippie! Hip, hip, hippie! Then a dull, low tone. Uh, duh. Those guys look cool. Where do you come from, huh? Desperate cry from blonde crew cut type. Get a haircut! We were certainly among the natives. As we proceeded to the boat, I sensed something was going to happen. Dun, da dun, dun. Was that well done? Okay. That was good, huh? I sensed something was going to happen. Several natives who had tried unsuccessfully to push our boat out 
scattered. Me and Joe said very little. We simply got on the boat, spun the boat around as fast as hell, got on, and he leaped in, sat down. We were only about 10 feet offshore now. Theoretically, the engine did not have enough draft to work. I just hope the engine didn't know that. Remember now, I had left the motor in forward gear. To start my outboard, you turn the throttle about two-thirds of the way up. As soon as I hit the ripcord, we tore off at well over our supposed top speed. Meanwhile, the natives had gathered on shore, only 15 or 20 feet away. We escaped Union Beach, New Jersey, under a gigantic barrage of rocks, sand, chugalug mugs, and other typical New Jersey hurling objects, inanimate pieces of one kind or another. Also, a few pieces of Union Beach, New Jersey themselves were thrown at us. 20 feet offshore, at 15 miles an hour, I exultantly gave the natives my uh, famous sign, the sign that uh, Ted Williams became known uh, throughout baseball world as once having given on television. Uh, then there was a large roar of anger from the natives assembled on the beach. We alternately laughed and lamented Union Beach then as we crossed the lower bay. We are freshmen, almost sophomores. And that first and last visit to Union Beach, New Jersey, taught us far more about sociology than they could in the rest of high school and certainly all of college.
right, then. That's terrible. You know, I just wish this radio station had a little more dignity after all. And so does my husband, Charles, you slob. Speaking of dignity, we have a little salute we'd like to make here tonight on this Saturday night. A little salute to an unnamed lady. Uh, have you ever ridden the uh, Staten Island Ferry? Speaking of the ferry boats, you know, we've talked about the Staten Island Bay. Well, this, this is one of the most, simply most exciting trips in all of New York. Oh, I love to hang on the rail there on the Staten Island Ferry with the sun shining down in the springtime and the summer. And you look down into that water, I'll tell you, you see more stuff in that water that comes floating out of New York City. And you just keep looking down that water, and you'll know why they call this town Fun City. I'll tell you. And that old Staten Island Ferry chugs across there. It's a lousy little miserable nickel. I'll tell you, it's the greatest nickel's worth in the history of Western man. Just chugs away there. And we would like to salute one of the great sights seen recently off of one of the Staten Island ferries. Did you hear about it? All right, I will read to you this little news note. And we want to salute this lady. It says, uh, while passengers gaped from the decks of the ferry boat, the ferry boat was entitled Miss New York, a 70-year-old lady paddled and floated contentedly in the upper bay waters off Governor's Island after jumping off yesterday from the 1.35 p.m. island-bound ferry. Police say the woman reportedly walked to the rail of the top deck, stepped over, hung first with one hand, and then the other, and then let go. Well, she just came, she came walking along as nice as could be and put her foot up like a woman, like she's going to fix a shoe or something, and just kept right on going said a witness who watched the proceedings. After surfacing, the lady began swimming back and forth. Now, remember, this is not a, a, a suicide. The lady began swimming back and forth and then turned over on her back and floated contentedly, shooting water up into the air as she did. <laughs> I mean, what a great scene, see? <laughs> And uh, there was a detective on, on board, see, and he sees this whole scene, so he rushes around, and he gets a life jacket. He throws it overboard, and the lady ignored it, preferring instead to float, until a passing Army Corps of Engineers boat heaved to and tossed in a lifeline. The lady then hauled herself in hand over hand to the boat, and after being pulled aboard, waved cheerily to the large audience aboard the ferry boat. I mean, you know, she waves. And the, the boat, the Miss New York, continued its trip and went on without further incident. I'd like to salute that lady. That lady has done something that millions of people looking over the ferry boat rail, I'd say for probably the past 50 years, have wanted to do. Just step off and float a while, and paddle a little bit, and blow some water up in the air. And then when the time comes, you get aboard the next boat that comes along, and you wave cheerily at the audience aboard the ferry, if you will. That's very good. Got to salute that lady. China, China, China. I don't know what this is going to do with that lady. What a dragon lady hangs around. Oh, oh Chinatown. Big old Chinatown. 
Where that dragon lady sells them knishes night and day. Oh, Chinatown, Chinatown. Where that dragon lady sells all the knock horses. But time after time, China, Chinatown, where Terry and the pirates. Oh, that, uh, what's the matter there? Listen. What? That ain't after you've gone. Chinatown. That's China boy, I know. Wait, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not getting a message from control headquarters. Well, that's all right. That's that's my all-purpose tune. I can sing anything. Hindustan, I can sing Chinatown, anything. They're all the same tune, you know. They really are. <laughs> Plagiarism is not new. Oh, you know, speaking of plagiarism, you remember a couple of weeks ago we read a poem on the air that purportedly was taken from a uh, a book of poems that were compiled by a local grade school, poems written by kids in the sixth grade and the fourth grade and the fifth grade of that school, and everybody was, uh, you know, making a big issue of it. Well, I read one of these poems by this little kid, purportedly by this little kid in this class, and I read it on the air, and that can be dangerous, kiddies. I read it on the air, and about, I'd say, 20 minutes later, I was inundated with telegrams, phone calls, St. Bernard dogs who came in bearing messages, pigeons. I mean, I must have got 500 different letters from people saying, what do you mean that kid wrote that poem? I knew that poem when I was in third grade. What do you mean? Somewhere out there, ladies and gentlemen, is a little sixth-grade plagiarist, a little sneaky plagiarist. Did I ever tell you about the guy that I knew? Let me tell you a little story about plagiarism. <laughs> I knew a guy one day, I won't, uh, you know, the, we will not bring names into this, but there was kind of an embarrassing scene, and uh, this guy uh, was going to a very famous institution of higher learning on the eastern seaboard here, very famous one, and uh, Oh, yeah, probably one of the three most famous universities in the entire world. I will not go any further. Anyway, he had a perpetually worried look. I noticed this, and other people who knew him knew it. That worried look was always there, and yet he seemed to be on the top of the world. And one day, over coffee and a little joint down in the village, he looked at me and says, I'm going to tell you something. I said, what's the trouble? What's bugging you? You could just see it was bugging me, so I'm going to tell you. I've got a terrible thing to tell you. I said, what? He said, well, he said, you know, I'm rotten. I said, you are? Said, yes, I'm rotten. I said, in what way are you rotten? And, you know, everybody's rotten in some way. What way are you rotten that's bugging you more than other people? He says, well, I'll tell you this. Ever since I was a little kid, see, I liked to draw. But I could never draw anything good. I just draw. I copy stuff. Draw things. And I always wanted to be an artist. Be able to, you know, make these great paintings. And he said, one day in school, I'm walking around, and there was a note on the bulletin board that they're having a competition. Just a competition to uh, enter... Uh, an art competition in school there. So, so all you have to do is submit your painting and uh, maybe you win. So I said, what the heck? 
So I went back to my pad. I sat around. Thought about it. I took out some oils and some watercolors and some ink and stuff, and I started to draw things. He says, but I, I, I can never think of anything original to draw. He says, everything I draw, I copy. So ever since I was a little kid, I've been copying stuff out of magazines and stuff. So I keep drawing. It's about 1 o'clock in the morning. And he says, I got this record player in the pad there. And I got about 5,000 records I've been collecting ever since I was a kid. You know, all kinds of LPs. He's a real nutty jazz fan. He says, so uh, I go over and I put some LPs on the, on the record table. When all of a sudden, I see this dust jacket from this record and it's an old record so i had that record around the house like maybe nine years you know it's an old battered dust jacket it probably didn't sell five copies it was a you know it's a joe rinky dink and the seven mississippi feet warmers you know some outfit that nobody ever heard of and never will hear of again you know they're all working in the insurance business now and he says and there was this beautiful picture on the cover of the dust jacket. So I took it out. And I thought, well, I'll get myself in the mood of painting. See, if I, if I uh, maybe copy this thing, I'll just do a little copying. So I'm copying in the way there. He says, I got this nice big piece of canvas and I copy it with charcoal. And then I start mixing the colors and I'm painting this thing. He says, I'm copying it right off the dust jacket. He says, the only difference is, he says, I'm making it about five times bigger than it was on the dust jacket. See, I'm painting away. This is a true story, Bob. He says, I'm painting away there. And he says, and by 3 o'clock in the morning, it was done. Beautiful. There it's, oh, boy, what a beautiful thing. So, so by that time, I put the record away, you know, there it's sitting there. I'm waiting for it to dry. Well, the next day, one of my buddies comes into the room there. He's going to borrow a book. And he sees my painting up there on top of the bookcase seat. And he looks at it and he says, hey, Fred. That, by the way, is not his real name. Hey, Fred. Boy, is that a great painting. Where did you get that? And then he walked up closer and he saw that the paint was wet on it. He says, for crying out loud, this is a new oil painting. Who done it? This is an institution of higher learning. Who done it? And he said, there. Instantly, I was given the great choice. I was given the choice that man is always faced with. Do I tell him the truth? Or do I... Milk it for what it's worth. Well, Fred didn't know anything about art. I knew that. And Fred hated music. I knew that. So instantly my brain says, milk it. And so I turned to Fred and said, oh, it's something I just tossed off. I, last night I couldn't sleep. I painted it. I paint a little bit. And Fred says, no kidding. That's great. Why? That... That, that painting is fantastic. Why, that's a beautiful painting. How come I never knew you painted? Well, I don't do it much. I don't have much time to do it. I just painted it. <laughs> and so his friend goes rushing out. And five minutes later, four more guys come back. He goes down to the coffee shop and says, Hey, you ought to see that painting this guy's got in his room. And they come and are knocking on the door. And these guys come in. By then, there I am, you know, there's, a, here, there's my friend. And so these guys come running and say, hey, we want to see your painting, Fred. So it's up there. He says, I, 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 you know, I just, uh, I used to do that when I was a kid. I don't do that. I, I, he says, 
by now I'm trying to play it down, see. Uh, I don't do it much anymore. Just play around. And the four guys stood there with their mouths hanging open. Absolutely aghast at my great painting, which I had copied from a dust jacket, stroke for stroke, line for line. He said I did everything except use transfer paper. <laughs> there it was. And he says, the four of them were gassed. And out they go. He says, so, so I figured, well, oh, it's cool. I won't say any more about it now. Absolutely cool. He says, so I stuck it up back in the radiator and uh, proceeded to go about my business. A couple of days go by. And he says, by George, they, one day there's a note in my mailbox. They wanted to see me down at the college paper. I said, oh, college paper? Who do I know? No, says, please come to the, come to the paper office down there. You know, the Daily Bugle. So I said, all right, you know, I figured, gee, maybe they want me to write sports or something. So he goes down to the Daily Bugle, and here is sitting a guy with a tape recorder, and he says, uh, you're Fred, aren't you? And I says, yes, I am Fred. Right. Well, we'd like to interview you about your paintings. My what? It's about your paintings. We've been hearing a lot of talk about the, your, your, what a great painter you are. Well, uh, I just do it. And he's got the tape recorder going, so I just do it once in a while. Off. He says, oh, boy, I'm sick now by now, you know. I figured I'll be very, he says, I'll be very ambiguous on the interview. I just, you know, I fool around. I don't paint. I not really. I just play around with oils. I don't paint. He says, never once did I say I actually painted. I don't, I just fool around. And the guy says, well, gee, uh, you, very, very interesting, uh, why is it you're not in fine arts here at the university? Oh, I'm not that good. I just... And then came the crusher. The guy says, what do you mean not that good? Why, half of the guys that have seen your paintings is better than anything the fine arts department's done in 20 years. Oh, well, that's nothing at all. Well, he said this thing began to snowball. It began to snowball. He says, it was like a giant avalanche coming down out of the Alps somewhere. And the next thing I knew, he says, there are guys coming in to see my painting, and by George, it is now entered in the painting contest. So I figured, well, first of all, I've never won anything in my life. He's believed me, I could enter the Mona Lisa in a painting contest, and it would come back rejected. He said, I've never won anything in my life. So I figured, well, this, that's going to end it. See, so now it's in the contest. That's the end of it. At, at least it was out of my room. It was out of my sight. And I could sleep nights. He said, would you believe it? Two weeks later, it is announced in the Daily Bugle on the front page with big letters, Fred wins painting contest. And there is a picture of my painting right there in the paper. Oh, boy, oh, my God. Oh, now what do I do? He says, not only did I win, I won $1,000. 1,000 smelolians. 1,000 buckaroonies. Oh, what do I do now? After you've gone, oh, what do I do now? And then they called me down to the fine arts department, and they presented me with a check for $1,000. The dean did. And everybody's applauding and cheering. And they take pictures for the paper. He says, there were newspapers that came from as far north as Augusta, Maine. There were newspapers from Charlotte, North Carolina. There were guys from radio stations. And they gave me a check for $1,000. And there I was standing next to my rotten, crummy painting that I copied off the dust jacket of a miserable LP that I once bought for 98 cents in a record hunter. Oh, what am I going to do now? 
This is W.O.R. and uh, Radio Free Broadway here, and this is me. Hey, by the way, speaking of uh, speaking of uh, things artistic, I, I have to I have to get get on record here right now that I have a story in the current Playboy, and I must say, uh, with all due modesty, it is uh, I had more fun writing this one I think than any of the short stories I've yet written for Playboy. I don't know why. Certain things get you, and uh, it is. I would say out of the last, uh, oh, maybe ten or so stories that I've had in Playboy, this is my 14th now. This is my 14th. That's a lot of short stories for a magazine. And uh, I would say this probably uh, gave me more fun writing than any of the last ten. Wouldn't you say, Lee? I had a great time writing this one. Ollie Hopnoodle and his Haven of Bliss in the current... <laughs> That's a real name, by the way. Uh, oh, listen, you guys think... Uh, the trouble is you guys come from the East, you know. You have... Uh, you, you really do. You come from the East, and you, you always observe the humorous names of the Midwest, but never observe the names that your friends have. Oh, sure. I know a guy out here, right here in New York, named Clarence Turtle. I think that's a good name. <laughs> He's a typical New Yorker, you know? Oh, sure, uh, uh, Abernathy Garfunkel, I know, who lives right in the shadow of Magnificent Alexander's on Fordham Road. I mean, it, 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 nobody thinks that name is funny, but if I say Ollie Hopnoodle, I think that's a wild name. Did I ever tell you that I knew, oh, I know a lot of great names of people. Cassie Ledbetter, Delbert Bumpus. Uh, huh? Oh, yeah, Cletus Wapp? Well, I knew Cletus. Cletus Wapp, uh, for those of you who are interested in the name Cletus Wapp, I knew Cletus Wapp lived out uh, in a town <laughs> outside of Louisville. <laughs> and uh, Cletus Wapp was a, was a basketball player who played on the Rabbit Hash Kentucky Blue Stockings, which was a <laughs> which was a top basketball team around out there. When I, and and uh, you, you'd hear the the sports announcers come on out there in places like uh, oh uh, Dismal Seepage, Ohio, and little places like that. The other that's an actual town, and uh, they would come on. And they would give the scores for the various basketball games on. And uh, I remember one night hearing one of these guys say, well, he said, he said, well, once again, the uh, Rabbit Hash Blue Stockings done it again, and Cletus Wapp start. And, uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I thought, well, you know, that's the Midwest. You, it's, uh, the, the, the names out there have a certain uh, Elizabethan ring to them. And uh, Delbert Bumpus is typical. Cassie Ledbetter. Uh, I knew... Uh, I'm a Gene Pearl. That's a typical name. Uh, I knew uh, J.X.K. Smothers. And if you're interested, his name was J.X.K. It was not, uh, they were not initials. It was J.X.K. Smothers. <laughs> and that, that when he was born, you know, he came, he came popping out into the world there. He had webbed feet. And uh, he came popping out in the world, and I could just see his old man say, Well, by God, little J.X.K. arrived on time. And he just looks like J.X.K. That's his name, J.X.K. Smothers. 
And, uh, yeah, well, his brother's name was J.R.T. Smothers. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a common thing. Did you know that that is a common thing in certain areas of the country to give people initials for names? Well, uh, uh, the most common one is Truman. H.S.T., Harry S. Truman. The S stands for nothing. They just thought S would sound good between Harry and Truman. So they put an S in there. And uh, when, uh, people never quite believed that, but uh, that's a fact. That the, uh, uh, what, what are you writing down? I think you get a little note being come. A.J. Foyt. Well, sure. A.J. Foyt is his name. And uh, he's a typical, uh, typical uh, clodhopper. You know, you, you, the, oh, sure, the, uh, there's a certain type of guy who lives, uh, who lives on dirt tracks. And uh, A.J. Foyt is the name. A.J. Foyt. That's a, it's just got a nice ring to it. That's all. A.J. Foyt, you know, his name could be Albert Joseph Foyt. That's nothing, but A.J. Foyt has a name. You know, speaking of dirt tracks, you don't hear... The, the, the dirt track here does not, uh, does not have the, uh, the impetus or the, the meaning uh, in the East that it has in places like the... Uh, well, I sh- not the Mid-South, because they go more for stocks. But I'm talking about the Upper South and the Lower Midwest. The dirt track racing is a way of life. And uh, one of my earliest recollections of dirt track racing. Now, dirt track racing is very different from the Indianapolis kind of racing. You know, Indianapolis racing is is a big brick oval, and that's very formal racing. But dirt track racing, that a lot of farmers will dirt track race. They'll have have in the backyard, uh, maybe sometimes in the garage in the back, they will have a four-cylinder racing car that's used nothing. They do nothing but dirt track race it. Now, that would make, by the way, it would make a wild movie. This would make a great Steve McQueen movie, The Dirt Track Racer. Very different from the Indianapolis Racer. Has no relationship whatsoever to the sports car crowd. Has no connection with hot rodders. In fact, they usually put hot rodders down. And I can only say probably the closest thing that parallels a real dirt track racer, an Indiana dirt tracker, is possibly a, uh, an Indiana trotting horse nut. These guys race. And uh, it's very unsubtle. And they don't talk much about the technicalities. They're never covered by the ABC wide, wide world of sports. And it is really nitty-gritty racing. And I remember one of the very first uh, experiences that I had in dirt track racing. We're riding along one day in the car. You got the scene? I'm in the back seat. My kid brother's in the back seat. My mother's in the front seat. It's Sunday. That's when all the dirt track racing is done. It's Sunday. We're driving along in a long line of cars. It is now Sunday afternoon. And the Sunday afternoon uh, traffic jam, which was just endemic, had already begun, was in full swing. So here we're sitting there. See, and off to our left is this dirt track, which was surrounded by a high wooden fence. And above a dirt track, the way you can tell a dirt track, is this great mushroom cloud of yellow, stinking, rotten, furry dust that hangs over it. That's the way you can tell it when it's actually in business. It's really a dirt track, and it's usually it's yellow clay. And so after about the third heat, you can't see anything down there. It's worse than bear baiting. I mean, it, it must have been very close to the Elizabethan scene because I've gone to many a dirt track afternoon, and there's usually about 500 fanatics sitting in the stands, which are nothing but gray, unpainted boards. 
and there's usually a guy walking up and down selling popsicles, and uh, another guy walking up and down selling beer. And uh, everybody sits out there, and they're wearing painter's hats, you know, the kind that say Sherwin-Williams around the top, or, or they're wearing big straw hats. <laughs> well, the, the painter cap is great because it keeps the dust off your head. You know, it's got, the big, it's got the big bill. And the temperature is usually about 175 degrees because it is this place they pick where, for the dirt track is always in waste ground, obviously. And so it's in a vacant lot someplace out on the other side of the dumps just outside of town. There's about three dirt tracks that go into it, and all the cars are parked all around out there in the, in the grass, knee-deep in mud. And here in the middle of it all is the dirt track, wooden boards all around. And the reason they have this fence all around, so you, you, you have to pay to get in. See, if, you, if they didn't have the fence, you'd just look in and watch. So they have this gray fence all around. It's a little oval. Now, how big is the dirt track? That's what scares you, about the size of the average high school gym. I'm not kidding. Uh, if you think, you know, think in terms of a one-mile track or a two-mile track, these little babies are about a block around, see? <laughs> and these guys go full bore from the minute that that flag goes down. You hear down in the crowd, in the dust, you hear these guys coming around for the... the, the they all, it's a flying start, you see. They do not have a stop start. It's a flying start. They come barreling around. And there's about nine guys in each race. They come, because that's about all they can get on the track, see? So they come barreling, sometimes on a big event, they may have 10, and look out, man, that's something. They come barreling around in this little knot of screaming, angry, four-cylinder cars. Now, these guys use all kinds of engines. They'll take uh, a bored-out Model A engine, or they'll take a bored-out, uh, sometimes even an Offenhauser will get in. You know, some rich guy found an Offenhauser in a wreck someplace, and he bought it for $40 and fixed it up. And uh, so once in a while, a guy be and and the the bodies that they have are really great. They have these big high things in the back, you know, the big tail that goes down, comes all the way up to the top of the driver, and the front of the car usually comes about up to the waist. It's got a little a little plastic windshield that goes around that they build. They buy kits to build the bodies out of, and they paint them wild colors. You know, you see a Charisse car, a purple car, and they all pick their own numbers. And so the big big number on the side seven or twelve. And there may be eight twelves in the race. <laughs> Everybody, other guys like twelve. They pay twelve on a car. So, so, oh yeah. Then you see guys, and they have they have skulls and crossbones painted all over the side of these things. And half the time, these guys will race without wearing any helmets or anything like you know that's big city stuff. And it, somehow it shows your chicken. You know, you put a helmet on. So you'll see a farmer roaring around Sunday afternoon. He's out there with his car, and his his uh, his kids are down on the pit. And he's roaring around. And what is he wearing? He's wearing one of these big Sears Roebuck straw farmer hats in the race. You know, he's got a strap around. He's racing around. And, uh, oh, yeah, there was one guy who used to race all the time out there with a corncob pipe. He was famous for a corncob pipe sticking out of his mouth. And he'd go roaring into the turns. Well, the first experience I ever had, I don't know how I ever got on this, because this is all, you, you want to hear more about this? This is all beginning to happen, you see. At this time of the year, it goes from about... Oh, I'd say about uh, the first day of summer, uh, and it, it, it reaches its apogee, and the reason I'm, I'm saying this right now at this point, because they're already pointing now for the very big day, it reaches its very apogee at the peak, July 4th. All over Indiana, they have these little county fairs, and usually they're held over the 4th, once in a while they're held in the fall, and each one of them has two tracks. One is for the harness racing, which is a big deal in Indiana. All of you saw Elizabeth Taylor sweep uh, 
every track in Indiana. What was that national velvet it was called? No? What was the one? Oh, that was the one with Dick Haves. Yeah, State Fair. You remember that, baby? And, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, that was a big joke out there. Remember uh, all the Indianans laughing about uh, about uh, that, that movie they made about State Fair, Indiana? It's nothing like the State Fairs in Indiana. And, and uh, you don't see any guys like Dick Haves out there riding those horses around. They're all tall, skinny farmers that chew tobacco and swear like mad and bet like tomorrow is never going to come. I mean, they bet they bet their horses, their cows. They bet their Oldsmobiles. Oh, there have been afternoons out there on the tracks in Indiana where guys bet their whole family. Oh, yeah, you know, the, the, the race day is over, and, and the, the guy that won takes home 17 kids, four new wives. He takes home cows. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, they, they bet, you know. And so uh, this, this day, this, the first day that I'm a little kid, I'll tell you, it's one of the very earliest remembrances I have. Yeah, now, we all have early remembrances, but this is one of the very first memories that I have of something happening that really impressed me. That, that it, it, it just bored itself into my brain, and I always, I can even see the picture as clear as if there's a Kodachrome in my mind. We were sitting in a long line of traffic, and the cars are all overheating. It's hot. It's 115 degrees. My kid brother is whining. And we're lined up going into this state fair. It was a fair, and it was held... Uh, this this particular fair was a spring fair. They have uh, usually spring fairs, and they don't have fall fairs. And this was a spring fair held about the second or the maybe the maybe the last week in June, just about this time of the year. And I know that school was out and had just been out, and I'm sitting in the back seat. I must have been about five or six. My kid brother is sitting next to me, and he's whining. And the cars are all lined up, and it's heating. And we touch when you go into the state fair with a car. You buy a ticket, and they let your car come into the grounds. You drive in, they park it in there, and the old man is yelling out at the other drivers. And right on our right is this big fence, and it is the fence where they're having the races that the old man had traveled 87 miles this afternoon over hill and dale and then traffic jam after traffic jam to come and see. And he was bugged because the races have already begun, see. That's what bugged him. We were already late now, see. The races had started, and you could see this great cloud of dust that was just, it must have extended 3,000 feet in the air because it was so hot, the air was still, and this dust just rose up like a long column. You've seen pictures of the atom bomb. Well, it was like a long, tall, high, 3,000-foot-high column of this yellow, mustard yellow dust, impenetrable. And it had a big billowing cloud at the top of it. And we are now riding along the fence. The old man is getting bugged. Cars are ahead of him. Cars are behind him. We want to get in there and see the races. And you can hear the roar coming out of this place, which was right next to it. You hear, wow, 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 And then you hear the crowd, wow, wow. And then once in a while, you'd hear the PA system, this giant cacophony of dust and, oh, boy, and, and, and all the farmers are going in, you know. There's thousands of them still going into this place. When all of a sudden, out of the blue, this is one of those great remembrances, and I, I would love to have a painting of this. It was just an insane moment. All of a sudden, we hear, wow! There's a big roar right next to the fence. It's, it's just outside of our window. See, the fence, you could reach out almost and touch it. There's a big roar. Wow! And, wow! Wow! 
was a gigantic crash, and right over the Oldsmobile, <laughs> the top of the fence just went boom, big explosion, and right over the car, between our car and the car ahead of us, right over our hood, was this bright green racing car with yellow wheels. <laughs> he just went, <laughs> He sailed about 40 feet, and he hit a hot dog stand. And you could see the air full of hot dogs, you know, and mustard pots and people running. <laughs> the car went blue, and he landed on the ground, and it was wild. You see this guy sitting in the car. The car hit the ground. It went boom, boom. It bounced twice, slewed sideways, and stopped. And the old man sees all this. See, he's sitting in the front seat of the car. The car you could see the trail of smoke still hanging in the air where he went over his <laughs> And the old man sees this, see? And he says, doggone it! We're going to miss all the races! And <laughs> with that, this guy gets out of his car. You know, me and my kid brother, all of a sudden, we're all wild. We're alert. See, we're looking out. And the guy jumps out of his car, and he starts hollering at the spectators around there. He's hollering at the spectators. Hey, help me push it! And with it, well, like 30 seconds later, eight farmers are pushing him, getting him started. And blah, 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 he's got it going again. He drives it around in a circle. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, nobody's going to believe this. He drives it around in a circle, and the son of a gun goes right through the gate, and boom, right back out on the track. Now, that is dirt track racing, friends. Now, nobody's going to believe this. I, I know a lot of you guys are going to listen out there who've seen dirt track racing. I said, no, I couldn't. I'm sorry, I was there, and I saw it happen. It became a family legend. And, and about a half an hour later, we finally worked our way through this giant crowd with the turnstiles and, and the hot dog sellers and all that. And we are now up in the stands, way up there, and looking down. I always remember this sight as a little kid. You know, I was impressed by all of this. Looking down into that yellow dust. You couldn't see anything. You could just see, the, once in a while, you'd see a flashing green thing or a flashing red thing. And it was just one mass of dust. These guys would hit the turns. There was practically all turns on the track. It was, it was there wasn't much of a straightaway. I'd say the straightaway probably was about as wide as Times Square, maybe, at that. And uh, it was all one big turn. And these guys went full bore. From the minute they got in that car to the minute they got out of it, it just went full bore. There was just, they didn't even have accelerators, as far as I know. They just started this baby, out they would go. Well, these guys went round and round and round, the dust flying, people yelling and hollering. And about every five minutes, a car would go right through the fence. Just boom. He'd just fly right through the fence, and you'd, he'd be gone. And be a, you'd see, you'd see where the where the hole was. You'd see a, a shape exactly like the race car. You'd see this guy. You'd see this cutout. It's like a silhouette. Boom! He'd go right through, and they'd just keep running right going. They didn't have anything like the yellow flag is down. You know, the, somebody is draining. And, and, and uh, that was that was one of the things. It was a great split between the Indianapolis fans, who were like. Uh, that was official racing, you know. It was esoteric, not only not esoteric, really, but a fate that they would never have thought to putting out a yellow flag because somebody was leaking oil. That's all these cars did was leak oil. In fact, you'd see them go roaring around the track and you'd see this long stream of of Quaker State oil just being sprayed up into the air from these engines. I remember one guy. I'll never forget one guy. Uh, I became a real wild fanatical fan of. of uh, 
of uh, dirt track racing. That's a special kind of racing. And I'd be, I, I started to follow them around. I'd go all over, me and Flick and Schwartz. We would, we would get uh, Flick's car. We would drive. Wherever they were having dirt track races, we would go. And, and these same guys would be at all these tracks. The same drivers. All, all of them. You get, you get to know these guys. You know, you'd see them down there. And there were guys like A.J. Foyt. They all had names like that. You know, Cassie Ledbetter, Cletus Bumpus, and names like that. And they're all racing at the same tracks every week. And they all knew each other, see. And so they, they all had their own tricks. One guy would always get in front of another guy. I remember this guy. He had this, this blue car and uh, big silver wheels. And he would always get in front of, as soon as he would get in front of the pack, Anytime somebody was trying to pass him, he would fishtail. You'd see the back of his car, wow, 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 which was real dirty pool. You know, wow, wow, you couldn't pass this guy because he always gave you the impression any minute now he's going to go flipping out through the bush. You know, wow, 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 he'd scream off. Well, I remember one beautiful scene one time. These are all little scenes that, that the, the real sporting world, I'll tell you, this is one, one, step, one step away from cockfighting. It is. It's one step away, and, and very illegal. They were always issuing petitions around that they have it done away with. Because guys were all, oh, yeah, they, they tell you, they sometimes guys would have such big wrecks that entire counties would burn down. You know, just burn down the farms and the fields for miles around. And giant wrecks. And so one day, we're, we're sitting out there, me and Flick and Schwartz are sitting on the turn there, and this guy comes tearing into the straightaway right at us. He's Booming the logs. And he's sitting down there. His head is low. He's got the big goggles on. The wind is streaming past him. And you can see the oil squirting out of his car. And the wheels are digging into the dirt. Oh, when you when you see a dirt track racer dig its back wheels into the dirt, I'll tell you, there's nothing like it. They, they go and they dig big grooves. And the dirt flies out behind them and right into the face of the guy who's driving behind him every time. Oh, you, you'd see a dirt track racer. I'm serious. A dirt track racer. Seriously, was indistinguishable as a human being after a race, just by the mud and the crud and all the stuff that would fly in his face. You just see these goggles looking out of this big pile of looked like a compost heap, and you see look with oil all over. And so on this particular day, this guy is booming towards us, and he had this white car. I remember that because this is another one of those images I always see in my mind. This white car is booming right at us, and Schwartz and Flick and myself were looking down at boy, the guy's leading the pack. See. Big number 12 on the side of his car. Blah, 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 blah. And he's bouncing away. You could see him hopping off the ground. When all of a sudden it went boom. Just made a dull boom like that. It just went boom. And the two sides of his hood, he had this round hood on the thing. The two sides flapped out like wings. Just went boom like that. <laughs> Coming right at us. And two giant puffs of smoke came out of each side. It went boom. Just like that. And the car went boom, 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 boom. Another puff. One smoke pile came out, looked like a big smoke ring, boom, and the pack went, whoa, 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 right past him. Well, he pulled down into the infield, directly ahead of us, and the wings of his car are flapped out like that, and the smoke is coming out of his motor. I mean, it really blew up, you know. You can see the wires hanging all over there, the carburetors hanging by a couple of threads. Just landed. He got out of his car. This is, this is to me, I think most... Professional sports guys are far too cool about what they do. Just once, I would like to see Ron Swoboda, after he belts one into the bullpen 390 feet from home plate, jump up and down. You know, 
Hey, you know, hop up and down on second base. I'll, I'll tell you, the people would go ape, wouldn't they? You know, he comes running down the third baseline, jumps up and down. Oh, wow, he points to me. Me, look what I did. Wow, hey, Ma, look at Ralph. You know, oh, no, professional sports. No, they run into the dugout, you know, they slap the hands and all that stuff. But that, this guy did, did what, you know, what, what is the most human thing of all. His car has just blown up. He jumps out of his racer right in front of me and Schwartz and Flick. He jumps out of his racer. He's got this white helmet on, big goggles. And his coverall is all covered with oil and crud and dust and dirt and junk. And the smoke is flying out of his car. He jumps out of the car. And you could just see, oh, you could see he was bugged. He ran over there and he kicked his car. He just ran up and he kicked it. And he hit it. <laughs> he kicked it and he hit it. And Schwartz hollered, hit it again. Whoa, all right. He kicked it again. And with that, he turns and spits. He goes, Right on the back left wheel. Then he walked, a solitary figure, down the edge of the infield with all the cars roaring by him. And I thought at that minute, that minute, it was, it was emblazoned in my mind. If you're ever going to do anything, friends, do it. If you're ever going to get involved, get involved. Whether it's with women, stamp collecting, looking for quarters on 6th Avenue, do it. And I always remember that figure, that guy, in those light blue coveralls with the white helmet, walking, radiating anger, bugged at this car that blew up right at the moment when he was leading the pack. And then there was that other time, that other fantastic moment. We get out one morning, me and Schwartz and Flick and Bruner. It's an hour or two hours before the race. We always got there early. And all the cars are parked down there and guys are working on them. And we walked down. And one of the drivers, who we had seen like at 55 races or more, apparently recognized us from the stands. And he says, hi, guys. Looks like a good day. I'll tell you, Schwartz passed out. Schwartz to be recognized by one of the drivers who drives in the big dirt track races. He says, hi. And flicks his, how's the car? He said, oh, pretty good. I remember had this big yellow car with a big number nine, big blue number nine on the side. Real hairy-looking car. Had big exhaust that laid out the side. You could see the burn marks on the tail where the exhaust burned it off, you know. And the, the driver says, uh, yeah, take a look at her. Netflix says, take a look at her? Says, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I don't mind if my friends look at the car. Friends? Oh, of course. So Flick goes over and looks. He says, yeah, it looks pretty good. Kicks the tire. Schwartz says, looks ready. I had to say it. I said, can I sit in it? He said, sure, go ahead. I sat down in that car, that little bucket seat. I'll tell you, it grabs your bottom like a, like a fielder's mitt, grabs a baseball. I sat down in that bucket seat, and I looked at that little dashboard. All it had on it was a tachometer. And an oil pressure gauge. That's all. And an oil temperature gauge. That's it. And that, that steering wheel, that four-spoke steering wheel, with those beautiful aluminum spokes covered with black friction tape. That is a working car. And I sat down in that baby, put my feet way down in it, see? And I'm sitting in there, and I saw a couple of girls walking along through the infield, looking over at me. One of the drivers. I sort of waved. I got out, 
looked down at that yellow car. And that driver got in then. Started the tuner up. The motor roared. There was a puff of that blue smoke that comes from castor oil and high-octane gasoline. And he says, well, here goes nothing. And Flick says, what are you going to do? He says, well, take her out for a couple of laps. See how she's tuned. Here goes nothing, boys. And for ten minutes, he roared around the track, and we stood and watched with our eyes as big as tennis balls. Our moment of glory. Yes, friends, out there in the darkness, there are men who live on the very knife edge of it all. They make bullfighters look like greasy kids. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's nothing like 17 Offenhausers bearing down at you at 125 miles an hour to teach you what life is about and a few other things. They're out there. Just look for the big yellow dust cloud and guys named J.X.K. Smothers. They're all out there, and they're ready.